Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering salient appellate and constitutional law issues. Today, we'll hear from Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, about a case just argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, Patrick Frasinki. Though to some extent overlooked because of the high court's stacked docket this term, the case presents a consequential separation of powers question, the court's answer to which Foyer says could interweave politics more inextricably in the federal judiciary by potentially empowering Congress, or more specifically its majority party, to legislate out of court cases it finds politically disadvantageous. For hearing from Ben, let's get to our opening briefs. This week was an active one for California's 6th and 4th appellate districts. The former decided a case with monumental monetary stakes, while the latter rendered two opinions that further tailor boundaries of California's anti-slap law. In Central Laborers' Pension Fund v. McAfee, the 6th District decision, a unanimous panel reinstated a shareholder suit against technology and software companies Intel, McAfee, and McAfee's former CEO, David DeWalt, over breach of fiduciary duty claims relating to Intel's 2010 acquisition of McAfee in the form of a nearly $8 billion cash sale. Plaintiffs claimed the merger process was contaminated by conflicts and that DeWalt withheld from the McAfee Board of Directors and its shareholders material information about his negotiations, namely an informal offer tendered by Intel to DeWalt of a $50 per share deal, which DeWalt rebuffed. Eventually, the sale price per share ended up at $48. The trial court granted summary judgment to the corporate defendants and DeWalt, among several other defendants, but the 6th District reversed that ruling as to DeWalt, McAfee, and Intel, directing the trial court to consider whether DeWalt's non-disclosure might amount to a breach of fiduciary duty, and whether plaintiff's claims for aiding and abetting liability as to Intel and McAfee might have merit. The 4th District issued two rulings refining the contours of activity protected by the anti-slap law Wednesday. One involved signature gatherers outside of grocery stores, and another, a whistleblower exposing evidence allegedly doctored by the San Bernardino County Children and Family Services. In the first, Ralph's Grocery vs. Victory Consultants, presiding Justice Richard Huffman and a unanimous panel reversed a lower court that had found for the defendant, which operates signature-gathering companies in Southern California and paid individuals to collect signatures for various petitions and initiatives by the entrance of Ralph's Grocery Stores. The panel ruled that the defendant could not avail itself of anti-slap protection to fend off Ralph's trespass claims, though the sort of petitioning activity at issue here might typically fall within the anti-slap law's aegis. The panel felt its occurrence on private property and in close proximity to the store's entries and exits weakened the merits of Victory Consultants' defense. Factually, the case calls to mind another high court ruling involving petitioning activity in a shopping mall. Robbins v. Pruneyard Shopping Center, which the California Supreme Court, later affirmed by SCOTUS, protected First Amendment activity on shopping centers' private property, reasoning that when private property is generally open to the public and functions as the equivalent of a traditional public forum, then in those spaces, be them private property, the California Constitution protects reasonably exercised speech. The panel here distinguished this case from Robbins by stressing that the areas tread by signature gatherers here immediately adjacent to Ralph's store entrances were meaningfully different from and more utilitarian than the more congenial, common areas where passing shoppers might linger or leisurely congregate, which were considered in the earlier case. Thus, the panel reasoned such areas are not public forums under the Robbins decision. We'll see in the coming months whether the California Supreme Court disagrees. In Whitehall v. County of San Bernardino, the 4th District again rejected a defendant's anti-slap arguments, this time 
where that defendant, San Bernardino County, advanced the defense after firing social worker Mary Anna Whitehall when she alerted a dependency court that the county's Children and Family Services had submitted fraudulent evidence to the court. Specifically, Whitehall claimed the county submitted doctored photographs meant to mislead the court into believing home conditions where a nine-month-old child had died under suspicious circumstances were not as squalid and dangerous as they in fact were. Investigating employee wrongdoing, the panel said, might generally qualify as protected activity under the anti-slap law, but here the panel viewed Whitehall's firing as a baldly retaliatory action in response to her disclosure of the county's alleged fraudulence and thus unprotected activity. most notable news from the Ninth Circuit likely centers around a free speech decision it rendered last fall when the U.S. Supreme Court decided Monday it would add to its October term 2017 docket. In the case, National Institute of Family and Life Advocates for Spacera, the Ninth Circuit considered a California law mandating that pregnancy clinics display information advising patients of the availability of state-funded family planning services, including contraception and abortion group of religiously affiliated nonprofits which run pregnancy centers in California and are strongly opposed to abortion filed suit, arguing that the required notice amounts to impermissibly compelled speech in violation of their First Amendment rights. A unanimous Ninth Circuit panel upheld the law, ruling in short that the law merely regulated the practice of medicine and did not unduly compel pregnancy centers to espouse or promote abortion. Mitchell Keeter of Keeter Appellate Law helped author an amicus brief requesting the cert grant in this case that came Monday. Brief was submitted on behalf of Freedom X, a Los Angeles nonprofit dedicated to protecting religion and conservative freedom of expression. Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, the law at issue here, the California FACT FACT Act, is what's being challenged um, by the plaintiffs and now appellants in support of whom you filed this amicus brief. Um, before kind of digging into the, the legal weeds here as to exactly how and why the Ninth Circuit should have and you think the Supreme Court should. Um, invalidate this law. Maybe just generally, what are your your qualms with the FACT Act and the disclosures it requires of pregnancy centers? Well, the, the disclosures required are really how to have abortions to find subsidized abortions. And you're asking people who form these pregnancy centers because they oppose abortion, uh, basically to facilitate them. Uh, and I know that people have strong views on the abortion issue both ways. Uh, but it's really a question of conscience. I mean, if somebody opened a vegan restaurant because she wanted to uh, get people to consider adopting a plant-based diet because she thought that you know eating meat was wrong, uh, and the state said, well, you can have your vegan restaurant, but you need to post on the door directions to the nearest McDonald's, I think you could see the infringement on, on conscience, even if you yourself eat meat. And, you know... There's just as California might be very protective of abortion rights, there are other states like Texas that might be very protective of firearm rights. And if somebody wanted to open up a sporting goods store but not sell guns, uh, could the state force them to say, well, this is where you can find a gun if you want to buy one? Um, there really is um, an infringement on, on personal conscience when the state conscripts dissenting individuals into uh, being forced to express the state message. Um, I know that the state and, and the attorney general specifically have justified this because of the importance of information. We want people to be informed, and that's, uh, that's certainly a good value. Uh, it's just a question of whether that should be done by the state or by the people who have specifically spoken out 
in the opposite direction. Uh, one of the cases that, that we cited, I don't know if anyone else has, um, are cases starting with Miami Herald v. Tornillo. This was a 1974 case where uh, Florida had what they called the right of reply, that if a newspaper wrote an editorial, it needed to give equal space uh, to the other side. And the idea was, well, this will help create an informed electorate, and this is the most, the optimal medium for that rebuttal, because this is where people read the initial editorial. Um, but the Supreme Court uh, rejected that. It found that, number one, uh, it required the newspaper to use its own resources, including the, 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 you know, the print space, contrary to its wishes, and that's exactly what's happening here, because uh, the FACT Act requires these pregnancy centers to post on their walls certain messages when they might wish to reserve that space for other things. And it also, the Supreme Court also found that it could deter speech, that the newspapers might shy away from addressing certain topics lest they be subject to this uh, forced rebuttal. And, uh, you know, this could also apply that, that it, would, it would inhibit groups from speaking out if they're then forced to um, basically facilitate the very act that they oppose. Um, and my Miami Herald uh, has been uh, cited in several campaign finance cases where uh, the state created rules saying that if you spend money, then the other side will get more money to spend for, for, for their preferred candidates. And the Supreme Court has struck that down as, as unduly burdening and penalizing speech. Uh, and it seems to me this case goes even further because here, when you speak out, you're not merely ensuring that the other side will have the resources with which to speak, but you yourself must express their message. So it really does burden uh, speech in a way it really penalizes it. Um, and as, as valuable as the, the goal of information is, uh, it just doesn't justify that burden. If the state wants people to be more informed um, about access to abortion, the state can express that message itself. Speaking of justifications for a regulation, a big threshold question determining just how sizable such justifications needs to be, obviously, is what level of, of scrutiny a, a law would be subjected to by the court. The Ninth Circuit panel in reviewing the FACT Act applied intermediate scrutiny. Uh, in your amicus filing, you say that that is that's the wrong level and that strict scrutiny should be applied here. Uh, what uh, What's your reasoning is that um, those other cases that you mentioned are pretty comparable to this one, and, and, and they have also met such such scrutiny. What uh, what are the main arguments on, on that point? Well, uh, I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court recently in the Expressions Hair Design case, that's the credit card fees case where there was a question of whether they could, you know, had to say it was a, a discount for cash or, or a surcharge for credit cards. And Justice Breyer's concurrence, I thought, laid it out well. It talked about the intermediate level was the informational function provided by, quote, truthful commercial speech. But strict scrutiny applies to regulations that negatively affect the processes through which political discourse and public opinion is formed. So when you're talking about just truthful uh, commercial ideas, such as the price of a hamburger, that gets intermediate scrutiny. But when you're talking about the ideas underlying public policy, uh, that go beyond commerce, uh, we apply strict scrutiny. And there are really two U.S. Supreme Court cases that, that we think uh, are on point. The first was In Re Primus. Uh, this was a 1978 case. 
and it has a lot of factual parallels. There was a, a practicing uh, professional, an attorney, uh, advised a woman that she could contact the ACLU uh, for representation re- regarding legal action uh, in regards to her sterilization. And the state disciplined the attorney for that. We're saying this is we can regulate this kind of speech. Uh, in both cases, you have a professional, you have a potential client, uh, constitutional issue of, of procreation and sterilization. Um, the Supreme Court held that the ACLU was engaged in litigation to, quote, advance beliefs and ideas and as a vehicle for political expression. Um, and I would submit that pregnancy centers that are trying to dissuade women from having an abortion are doing the same thing. They're advancing a belief and idea uh, about life and, and about um, why, why childbirth is, is the superior um, option in these cases. So it's not... It's not commerce. In fact, I know the Ninth Circuit talked about uh, these pregnancy centers in the marketplace. They don't even charge for their services. So this really is not commercial speech as it's conventionally understood. And the other case, uh, which I think really uh, undermines the professional speech argument, was the Lowe case, Lowe versus uh, Securities and Exchange Commission from 1985. And this was a case, um, it was Justice White's concurrence that really laid it out talking about, this had to do with uh, investment advisors who had written a book. And the question was, well, is this book, you know, speech? It's strict scrutiny. Is it professional advice? It's intermediate scrutiny. And the court distinguished between uh, when professionals, quote, exercise judgment in light of a client's individual's needs and circumstances, that when you take the client personally in hand, listen to his or her specific circumstances, offer personalized advice, that um, is professional speech that can be regulated uh, with only intermediate scrutiny. But when you're expressing, you know, ideas to the public more broadly, uh, it's strict scrutiny. And that's really what we have here. I mean, this isn't a personalized message. This is the same message that goes to everyone who walks in the clinic. It has nothing to do with the individual's personal circumstances because the message is expressed before they they even walk in the door. It doesn't require any professional expertise. I mean, you could just have a high school intern posted on the wall. Um, the Fourth Circuit, as I called it, was the three Ps. It said um, that there's professional speech is when there's personalized advice in a private setting to a paying client, and none of those apply here. Um, this is not the kind of professional speech um, that you see in other cases. And in fact, it's the, the speech here isn't even really about the practice of medicine. It's about the legality of abortion. It's about the availability of subsidies and economic assistance. It's not about the medical specifics. So there's absolutely no medical expertise necessary to post these notices. So we really see that Primus and Lowe uh, really support strict scrutiny in this context. One other Supreme Court case that they haven't mentioned yet, but it's one that's pretty prominent in, in this area of constitutional law involving abortions and, and reproductive rights, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and that was invoked by the Ninth Circuit when it chose to apply intermediate rather than strict scrutiny because of some parallels that case has 
With this one, I'd like to ask you about, in that case, there were also some required disclosures that abortion providers would have to make sure to tender to any of their patients, um, printed materials that would describe the availability of state resources that could aid the patients in, in finding adoptive parents or finding child support and the like. Um, there, the Supreme Court did not apply strict screening to those compelled disclosures. Why do you not think that that, that precedent is, is kind of on all fours here or um, is, is very persuasive? Well, I mean, I looked at the Ninth Circuit citation. It was, I think it was to page 84 of, of Casey, and I looked at that, and what it said there is, uh, what's left of petitioner's argument is an asserted First Amendment right of a physician not to provide information about the risks of abortion and childbirth in a manner mandated by the state. Um, I mean, I guess it just seems that at least what that implies is something that's a little bit more related to the practice, to the medical issues, to the physical medical issues than more of what's, what's involved in this case. And I realize that there are probably going to be some, some gray areas. They always are. That's why the Supreme Court needs to intervene in these cases. Um, but, I think the, the case we have here, uh, the, the FACT Act, really um, is, is, is pretty far away from, from those situations. It, it just doesn't really deal with medical professional speech at all. And in fact, the pregnancy centers, as I said, can satisfy this without a doctor's you know, posting. Anyone can post this message. It's, it's not even described by the doctor. It's, it's really scripted by the state. So um, I think that this is just, you know, more extreme um, examples than, than some of the others we've seen. Um, one other piece of Ninth Circuit reasoning that you, you don't find particularly persuasive is that uh, this law has sort of universal applicability. It would apply to, to pregnancy centers that are anti-abortion, likewise with abortion providers. Um, why do you not find that, uh, that bit of reasoning persuasive? Well, that's sort of like the old saying that the law forbids the rich and the poor alike from sleeping under bridges. I mean, laws can certainly apply universally, but burden asymmetrically. Uh, I mean, from that reasoning, it would say that if the state or the federal government required all drivers to have a sticker on their car saying, President Trump is making America great again, that would be viewpoint neutral so long as it applied to registered Democrats and Republicans alike. But... Viewpoint neutrality has always depended on the substance of the speech, not the identity of the speaker. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, the Ninth Circuit, although it, you know, it takes a position now, it cited a, a 2002 case, Conant, Conant Walters, where it took the other position because they struck down a law that restricted doctor speech about marijuana. Um, speech that was critical, you know, that they, they, they weren't allowed to speak positively about the medical uses of marijuana. But of course, that law applied to all doctors, whether they were pro-marijuana, anti-marijuana, it, it applied universally. But just because it applies universally, again, it can burden selectively. So, um, the fact that, that it covers everyone doesn't uh, prevent the conclusion that it that it's uh, not viewpoint neutral. Um, it's just not what viewpoint neutrality means. Okay. Now, when abortion reproductive rights cases reach the Supreme Court, it's usually sort of clear on on which side pro life and pro choice camps will uh, muster. One interesting dynamic here is that it's not quite 
as clear, some have, have said, um, because in several more pro-life states, there are compelled disclosures that are imposed more so upon abortion providers that might involve sorts of medical advisements, some which some claim are scientifically dubious, um, certain disclosures such as that there could be a link between abortions and breast cancer or a subsequent negative mental health ailments res- uh, resulting from an abortion. Um, and the reasoning goes that if, if this compelled disclosure is struck down, that the same reasoning could be used to undermine compelled disclosures uh, enacted by more pro-life legislatures in, in, in other states. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about that interesting dynamic? What do, what do you make of it, and do you think, indeed, that it kind of muddies things here? Well, I, mean, I think it's true that, that, it, that uh, you know, that's one uh, consequence of, of how, you know, some, the, blue, the blue states are getting bluer and the red states are getting redder, uh, that you're seeing greater contrast uh, in state laws, uh, which to some extent is fine, but uh, again, sometimes it really does uh, infringe on, on individual conscience. Um, you know, personally, I'm not all that necessarily eager. I, I, don't, I don't know what the real effects of some of those other laws are. There, I mean, there's a general notion, though, that uh, the state, you know, for example, there are all kinds of laws about, um, you know, posting the calories in food or cigarette warnings and so forth, that if you provide a product, uh, you can be compelled, you know, required to, to describe it accurately. Um, again, I don't think that's really what's involved here in California. I think this really concerns more of, like, the legal issues and the economic uh, issues than describing the risks of either abortion or childbirth. So I don't really see it as, as so much, you know, medically related information as might be the case in other contexts. But it is true, and this is something, of course, that, that is always present with the First Amendment, that, you know, the First Amendment does pr- protect the entire political spectrum. And Sometimes it might be those who usually vote Democrat who will benefit from uh, a broad interpretation of the First Amendment, and sometimes it will be those who tend to vote Republican. Um, but probably that's the only way we'll have any kind of bipartisan consensus for the First Amendment uh, is if it, if it does pr- protect uh, speech on, on all sides of the spectrum. One last one for you. It's obviously early yet. Uh, oral argument has yet to be set here in this case. But uh, viewing it from a present vantage, do you feel confident that there there are five votes on the Supreme Court to strike down the FACT Act? Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, I know that Justice Kennedy, of course, is usually the swing vote, and he is he is very you know, aggressive in, in protecting, uh, free speech. Uh, so I would be, uh, confident in this context of his vote. Again, I mean, it's not, the case isn't real. I know it seems to be about abortion, but it's really about speech. And, um, so one can be, you know, have, be very protective of, of, you know, abortion all across the board without any restrictions whatsoever. Um, but that doesn't mean that the state should be able to conscript those who disapprove of it to uh, enable and facilitate um, abortions and, and to spread the message uh, of how to obtain one. So I don't, I don't really perceive that kind of conflict. I think 
you know, Justice Kennedy can favor abortion rights and still uh, protect the speech rights of those who, who disapprove of it. Okay, I will certainly find out soon enough how Justice Kennedy and his co-avals feel about this one. Uh, for now, Mitchell Keeter of Keeter Appellate Law. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. In a term when the U.S. Supreme Court will reckon with free speech, gerrymandering, gambling, mandatory arbitration, and technology's challenges for the Fourth Amendment, the case Patrick Versinke has flown a bit under the radar. But Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, says it shouldn't. Joining us now is Ben Foyer. Ben, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure, Brian. Always fun to be here. Okay, uh, so... In a case argued before the, the U.S. Supreme Court last week, Pacek versus Zinke, it's, it's one that's flown a bit under the radar. It seems to have eluded uh, the notice of some of the general court watchers here this term with the, the docket really loaded with super salient social questions. Um, this question nonetheless, or this case nonetheless, does bring to the fore a, a pretty consequential and timely question of constitutional law. Um, and so maybe we could, at the outset, sort of broadly frame it and then get into the details of this case. So as I, as I understand it, this case will look at whether Congress has, uh, by authoring a statute that instructs courts to promptly dismiss a certain type of lawsuit, a lawsuit um, comprising a certain subject matter, um, whether Congress has tread impermissibly on the rightful terrain of the judicial branch. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, this is, you know, this is a case that really implicates the concept of separation of powers. That's really what's at stake in, in this lawsuit. And it's one of those, uh, uh, Supreme Court cases where the facts, uh, and, and laws that's, that are involved in it are, are very narrow themselves. But the rule that the court will articulate about the boundaries, uh, between the different branches of the federal government is one that could be relatively consequential in the long run. This is a case that involves, um, as you said, a statute that Congress passed to remove uh, federal jurisdiction over a certain type of lawsuit. Uh, and to really understand kind of what's going on here, um, you know, I think it is important to kind of talk about the factual history of the case, what the case itself is about, and, and to use that as an example of the rule that the that the Supreme Court is currently wrestling with uh, as it decides what to do in this case, Patrick against Zinke. So this all comes out of a statute passed in the 1930s uh, that allowed gave the Secretary of the Interior authority to designate certain areas of land uh, in the United States uh, to be purchased by the federal government and given to Indian tribes. And in 2005, the Secretary of the Interior at the time, George W. Bush's Secretary of the Interior, in fact, designated an area of land in northern Michigan, um, northwest Michigan, actually, and uh, for a Native American tribes. And this happened, uh, it's happening more and more, uh, and, and has been happening more and more, uh, as you might imagine, because Native American tribes often have the uh, rights to build casinos, uh, and it's extremely lucrative. So there's a lot of interest uh, in obtaining lands, especially in areas that don't have casinos, using it as a reservation for a tribe, uh, and then that tribe wants to build a casino uh, and have the land for itself and, and for its people. 
So, so that's what happened. That, that's what happened here. This happened in in uh, northern Michigan in an area of land near where Patrick lived, uh, and the Secretary of the Interior had obtained a 150 square acre uh, uh, piece of land for the benefit of a tribe that had first been recognized in the 1990s. It's call, it was called, and I don't want to get this wrong because I want to be respectful, uh, the Mache Benashawish Band of the uh, Potawatomi tribe in northern western Michigan. It's near an area called Gun Lake, uh, which is a sort of bucolic, beautiful, remote uh, area in Michigan. So Patrick didn't like that. Patrick didn't like that, um, that all of a sudden there was going to be a big casino uh, on this area of land that right near where he lives that was formerly very remote and, you know, what you might think of northern Michigan kind of being like. So Patrick brought a lawsuit. Uh, and Patrick, Patrick's lawsuit uh, essentially claimed that um, the statute that Congress used, that the Secretary of the Interior used, uh, was limited to acquiring lands for tribes that had been recognized in the 1930s. Uh, these rights that uh, um, to sort of give reservation land, or the, this idea of reservation land, uh, arose from 1930s-era New Deal laws that were designed to reverse historical discrimination against Native Americans, against American Indians, because pol federal policy had uh, involved the assimilation of Native Americans prior to that. And, and many uh, believe that that was very destructive to sort of Native American identity and, and, and populations. Uh, so, so this was a reversal of that. This was an attempt to uh, give Native Americans their, their own land. So, so that was Patrick's lawsuit. Great. So then, uh, one one important thing to note there, as you say, is um, 1999 was the, the year when this particular band of, of Indians was was recognized, and so that question was then, as you say, at the forefront of Patrick's lawsuit, whether or not the original statute, the original uh, legislation, could and, uh, allow for Congress to, as it did in 2005, acquire that that tract of land near Gun Lake for for the band. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. So what happened was. Uh, Patrick um, brought this lawsuit, and, and while his lawsuit was pending, um, the Supreme Court decided a different case. And, and in the different case, the Supreme Court found that the premise of Patrick's lawsuit was, act, was indeed correct, that, that the statute that the Secretary of the Interior was using to acquire land for Indian tribes was, in fact, limited to Indian tribes, Native American tribes that had been recognized as of the 1930s. So, so that happened, and then at the same time, Patrick's lawsuit went up actually on a question of standing on appeal. The, the district court dismissed his lawsuit because the district court said, hey, Patrick, you're just some guy who happens to live near a place where there's a casino. You don't get to challenge the kind of constitutionality of the Secretary of the Interior's purchase of that land. You don't have standing to do that. Um, that went up on appeal. Uh, it, it went to the circuit court. It actually went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court found that Patrick did have standing. Um, and so the case went back down to the trial court uh, to kind of proceed with the lawsuit otherwise. And in the interim, of course, Patrick's kind of 
primary, the basis for pri- his primary complaint, which was that this was outside the Secretary of the Interior's statutory authority, uh, had been kind of determined by the Supreme Court in the separate case in, in his favor. Um, and, and so then things get a little bit weird. Patrick kind of goes off grid a little bit. He doesn't really pursue his lawsuit. And then Congress passes, um, the, perhaps because this uh, uh, Indian tribe hired some good lobbyists, uh, uh, but um, Congress passes a special law, a, a very unusual law um, that has one purpose and one purpose only. Uh, it's called the Gun Lake Trust Land Reaffirmation Act, and its only purpose is to ratify the Secretary of the Interior's purchase of the land for the tribe near Gun Lake, even though uh, the, the statute under which the Secretary of the Interior purchased that land initially um, had been found not to allow that kind of purchase. So Congress has now come in after the fact and said, no, this is okay, we're giving statutory authority, this is fine, we want to approve this. And then it goes a step further. Congress actually, in the statute, removes from the federal courts uh, jurisdiction to, um, to maintain any challenge to the purchase. Uh, in fact, the, the statute specifically says that no uh, lawsuit shall be filed or maintained in a federal court uh, and if there is a lawsuit in a, filed or maintained in a federal court, it should be promptly dismissed uh, to the extent that lawsuit is challenging the Secretary of the Interior's acquisition of this land. Uh, and, and the legislative history at the time makes very clear that Patrick's lawsuit was precisely what Congress had in mind. Uh, Congress did not want uh, Patrick's lawsuit to go forward uh, and so removed jurisdiction uh, and said that the lawsuit shall be dismissed. And that's how we get to the case we have here. Uh, the question is, can Congress do this? Can Congress take a look at an ongoing case uh, in federal court that it does not like uh, for whatever reason and simply in the middle of the case uh, kind of pluck out the federal court's jurisdiction to hear that case? Uh, and, and sort of mandate that that case be dismissed. Is that is that something that's that's permissible given the uh, um, the structural dimension of the Constitution that separates the judicial and legislative powers? It uh, perhaps may or may not bear on the constitutionality of, of that action of the legislation, but uh, just sort of interesting that here, you know, his suit being dismissed, as you say, is not a kind of incidental byproduct of legislation, sort of. Uh, made for some other general purpose. But it does seem to be that Congress is essentially legislating his case out of out of the courts uh, intentionally. That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly what Congress is doing. The statute is targeted directly to Patrick's lawsuit, uh, and the statute is aimed at ending Patrick's lawsuit uh, without having kind of Patrick's lawsuit otherwise heard. Now, Congress arguably didn't need to do this. Um, Congress at that point had ratified the Gun Lake um, acquisition, that's what the statute does, sort of said, well, even if the, the Secretary of the Interior's authority is generally speaking constrained to Indian tribes that were in existence in the 1930s, we are approving this purchase of land. That, that's probably sufficient uh, to overcome the, the gravamen, the merits of Patrick's lawsuit. Uh, but Congress decided it, needed, it wanted to or needed to go further. 
Um, and there could be a lot of reasons that certainly costs money to litigate. Maybe Congress wanted to um, save this uh, tribe from lit- having to litigate. I suspect that that perhaps it was the kind of legislation that was drafted by lobbyists and that uh, because it was so narrowly focused and uh, supporting a Native American tribe, uh, kind of both sides could get on board with it and it, it, it kind of went through without much, too much uh, uh, concern about the separation of powers issues with the constitutional dimension. Uh, but in, in either event, um, Congress wrote this, this part of the statute specifically to prevent Patrick's lawsuit from going forward in the district court. There are, of course, uh, constitutional provisions in Supreme Court case law that really empower Congress uh, and give it some pretty wide latitude to, to circumscribe the jurisdiction of, of the federal courts um, and also to to change substantive case law, even if doing so as, as here will effectively dismiss pending litigation. Uh, one illustration of that is uh, just from a Supreme Court case last year, Bank Markazi versus Peterson. Uh, Help me uh, sort of set, set the context here with the constitutional and, and SCOTUS precedent that, uh, that comes to bear here. So Article 3 of the Constitution, which sort of uh, uh, controls the judiciary, and lays out the judicial power, provides that Congress can um, create, uh, the language used is the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish uh, inferior courts uh, to the Supreme Court in the United States. The Constitution doesn't require Congress to do that. Uh, the Congress could essentially eliminate all of the lower federal courts other than the Supreme Court if it wanted to. It would, of course, be a, a mess, practically. But if Congress wanted to do that, um, under the Constitution at least, it has no obligation to fund or create uh, lower federal courts. If it does, it, the, the judges it, 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 it um, uh, creates can't kind of be fired. They have life tenure. But uh, Congress could... Um, has a lot of discretion about creating the courts themselves. And the Supreme Court has held that the power to create is, generally speaking, the power to destroy. Uh, and that if Congress has the authority to give jurisdiction to the federal courts, um, it is authority to take away jurisdiction from the federal courts. Um, and that's kind of the basis for, for much of the question here. Um, the the Supreme Court's jurisdiction also is um, limited to uh, cases under such exceptions and regulations as Congress shall make is, is how the Constitution is framed. So Congress actually has quite a bit of authority in terms of how the federal courts are laid out, how they operate, how they um, uh, um, sort of administratively uh, are are funded. But the Supreme Court has also recognized that because separation of powers is an essential element, an essential unwritten element of our constitutional structure, the um, Congress cannot tell the courts what to do in given cases. That is, Congress cannot go in and say, in Smith v. Jones, the court must find for Smith. Um, so there is a limitation to what the the, the courts can do, um, uh, what Congress can do to with regard to the courts. And much of the litigation uh, that's sort of going on now and in some ways has occurred on this topic throughout American history uh, is really focused on, well, what exactly can Congress do? Where is the limit to what Congress can uh, permissibly limit within its very broad powers under the Constitution? 
but that doesn't tread into the domain of specifically telling courts what to do, to intrude on the judicial power, the inherent judicial power. So, the, so there have been a few cases on this subject. Uh, last term, there was a case uh, that, that you just mentioned, a case called uh, uh, Bank Markazi against Peterson, and that case uh, was one involving a lawsuit against assets in U.S. banks that belong to the uh, nation of Iran. Uh, and so the, the, there have been some lawsuits, uh, against the, the nation of Iran based on, um, uh, claims of terrorism, uh, that have been funded by the Iranian government. And there are assets also that have been frozen, uh, at American inst- banking institutions, um, arising from some, uh, sort of sanctions legislation earlier this decade. Um, the Iranian government had sought to defend against the seizure of these assets using a number of affirmative defenses um, under a special statute that, that had been created um, for situations like this. And Congress went in and essentially just removed those affirmative defenses from the statute. Uh, and basically set up a situation where the Iranian government had no legal defense, uh, even though they'd gone into the litigation having legal defense, have, having a basis to defend. Congress went in, changed the statute, and removed all those bases to defend. Essentially, Congress ensured <laughs> that a default judgment uh, against the Iranians would occur, or, or at least a judgment against the Iranians would occur. Um, so the question was, can Congress do that? Does that intrude on uh, the separation of powers issues? Because it's ultimately commanding a certain result, but doing it by different language, by not actually commanding the result. It's sort of leading to that result necessarily. Um, and, and the court found that, yes, Congress can do that, that that is within Congress's power. Um, this contrasts in some ways with some earlier decisions. For example, in the Civil War era, um, the um, Congress had passed a law, a little bit tricky, but uh, the president had issued pardons after the war uh, during Reconstruction, President Johnson, uh, for um, uh, individuals in the South who pledged loyalty to the United States. And um, Congress, he had a hostile Congress, and, and Congress passed a law essentially saying that Evidence of a pardon, someone tried to use evidence of a pardon um, as evidence that they were loyal because the, the pardons that Johnson issued said that, look, I'm pardoning you from any claims of disloyalty, so you know, you're loyal. Um, th- there were some laws that allowed people in the South who, who had been, who were loyal or deemed loyal to reacquire property that had been taken from them by the military. And, um, uh, Congress passed a law saying that if someone tried to use one of these pardons as evidence of loyalty, that it was the opposite, that they were to be deemed disloyal 
and they were um, uh, not allowed to use these laws that that would uh, allow people to reacquire property if they were loyal. Does that make sense? So sure. the the so so Congress came in, took this you know <laughs> Johnson's uh, uh, pardons, and said that 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 is evidence that is conclusive evidence, in fact, of uh, uh, disloyalty because you were pardoned, um, and uh, therefore you, you can't use these statutes. And the Supreme Court said you can't do that. The Supreme Court said that um, uh, no, no, that that is too intrusive on what the courts do in terms of. Uh, weighing evidence and and um, coming to a, a judgment, so so th- those laws were thrown out. Um, so there's a little bit of a contrast between what was going on in Bank Markazi um, um, and what was happening in the Civil War and how the Supreme Court was viewing the interplay uh, between the branches at that time. Okay, so then you set up well the some of the the guideposts the court has set up um, there. As you say, is is some boundary, some constitutional pale past which Congress couldn't uh, legislate too uh, too fastidiously regarding sorts of cases that come before federal courts. Uh, it, what were your uh, overall impressions of, of the argument last week? Because the prevailing impression seems to be that that justices uh, don't think this comes too terribly close to that constitutional pale. That uh, this language seems to be fairly standard jurisdictional limiting. Uh, and e- even if that more uh, dubious language, the shall promptly dismiss language, um, seems suspicious, that it really doesn't do anything effectively different than just the jurisdictional limiting. And so maybe it's surplusage or, um, you know, maybe it's a redundancy, but it's it shouldn't be viewed any more skeptically than the jurisdictional limit. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts seemed a bit more skeptical or a bit more suspicious of the uh, the Congress's of, of this uh, legislation and worried um, that if we went down a, a slippery slope, there could be some other context that might worry the, the rest of the court and might worry other folks uh, more where Congress could legislate um, sort of zones of, of immunity for itself or could create subject matter uh, areas of law that were kind of off limits to, to lawsuits. Um, what, uh, what was your impression of how the court felt here and, and uh, how you might see this case uh, shaping up? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a number of a number of things there. Um, you're right. So, so, so ultimately what happened is, is Patrick's lawsuit sort of has gone up to the Supreme Court and Patrick is essentially at this point arguing that uh, the the law removing jurisdiction is unconstitutional uh, because it impermissibly intrudes on the court's domain from a separation of power standpoint. And there's an argument made, which you kind of allude to, uh, that, you know, even if Congress can remove jurisdiction from the federal court, uh, the aspect to the statute that requires it to dismiss ongoing litigation uh, is is more of an intrusion than simply removing jurisdiction. I sort of didn't think that that was a, a sort of persuasive argument at the time, and it sounds uh, from like from oral argument, which occurred uh, uh, last week, that um, the court probably isn't going to be moved too much by that either. The What makes this case tricky, uh, and what makes the whole issue tricky, uh, is that the Constitution is... is exceptionally vague on how exactly separation of powers works. It sets up different branches, and there are kind of functions of the different branches that um, uh, kind of uh, check and balance the other branches, certainly in terms of their power, limiting the power of any given branch. But the idea that of separation of powers is a, uh, and, and that the powers have 
sort of separate domains and that there's separate value into in um, ensuring the distinction between the, the different powers, that arises kind of from, from political philosophy more than the Constitution itself, uh, which doesn't really make these, uh, you know, do- doesn't itself say something like, oh, the powers shall be separate, or the, the, the uh, branches of government, they shall be kind of totally separate in some way. So what makes it tricky is kind of understanding and thinking about how these different uh, um, uh, parts of the, the governmental structure function and interact when it's not really clear what the constitution itself would have uh, would have wanted the um decision to uh, allow congress to uh, approve this uh, to to kind of make these kinds of changes uh, in in jurisdiction of ongoing cases is one that um in in individual cases doesn't really seem like a big deal uh, i think to a lot of people and and i think that that you could hear that in the questions from the justices in the patrick argument um that is well sort of so what if patrick can't bring this lawsuit you know in you know on the gun lakes land acquisition um that congress has already ratified you know who who cares why is this a big deal why are we taking up our time with it um and it it's certainly perhaps in some ways less compelling than than even the iranian uh terrorism money recovery case the court dealt with last year um but the problem conceivably arises with the power itself and what congress could do with that power in other situations um you mentioned the possibility that Congress would, you know, remove federal jurisdiction from uh, to hear cases that involve corruption of Congress persons. Um, perhaps they could. Perhaps the Congress could do that. I don't think they would. I mean, a Democratic check. You'd you'd have a lot of time. You know, pretty tough time selling that one to your constituents when you get real. You know, re-election time. But there may be other situations less obviously problematic where a majority of Congress could uh, remove a a bigger issue from the jurisdiction of the federal courts. One that comes to my mind uh, has to do with forthcoming lawsuits I expect we'll see more and more over the next 10 to 20 years uh, involving um, contributions to global climate change that are um, people experience as a result of global climate change and um, you know whether certain companies and had contributed to that uh, that's something that I, I could see being very popular uh, among a certain group of uh, folks in Congress certainly in some circles that would be a very popular um, kind of lawsuit to shut down uh, and one way Congress can do it without really uh, legislating in any way substantively is simply to say, you know, the federal courts don't have jurisdiction to hear these kinds of lawsuits. Um, I, I think that you could see that as a risk with even large individual cases of litigation, um, where one of the parties is very powerful, and the case is in federal court, and the party kind of recognizes that it, it could spend money on lawyers and litigate it and maybe lose, or it could spend money on lobbyists, uh, and get Congress to kind of remove federal jurisdiction, and then it definitely wins because there isn't a forum, assuming there is no state court forum uh, for whatever reason. Uh, it, 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 there isn't a forum uh, for its case to be um, uh, for a case against it to be heard on that ground. 
So the potential for this power of Congresses is really broad. When we, we Americans often think that in the society ruled by, you know, run by rule of law, we, you know, if there, if there is a, uh, um, a wrong that's been committed, you can, you, you may not be able to get, uh, um, a, a sort of made whole again, especially if you've got a case against the government with immunity, for example, or a party that doesn't have assets, or, or for whatever reason, you, you know, there are a million reasons you might not be able to be made whole again, but at least you can probably go to court and raise your claim. You at least have an opportunity to file a lawsuit and have a court look at it and say, okay, I've looked at this, you lose, uh, for one reason or another. Whereas here, Congress is simply saying, look, the courts don't even have jurisdiction you 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 do not have the the courts do not have the ability to even hear you raise a claim at all. Something that I think um, it, it is a little bit different uh, and a little bit stranger uh, for Americans, and, and something that I think that at least during oral arguments, and I do think from the way oral arguments went, the court is likely to affirm, which would be in this case to say that this law is uh, acceptable, that this falls within the, the Constitution. But I do think there is a, a concern, and I think you heard it voiced by the Chief Justice and, and um, maybe a little bit by some others, that what's the boundary, uh, or is there a boundary, to what Congress can do here? Ultimately, if it really does all belong to Congress, um, you know, th- does it even make sense to say that Congress can't direct directly what courts do when they can do that simply by removing jurisdiction? So, so that, that's what I think the court is weighing on the court's mind, probably. It's interesting. It, you know, branches of government uh, pretty selfishly protect their, uh, their spheres of power. And so it, it did strike me as a bit odd that uh, most of the justices were pretty sanguine here. I mean, the, the fallout that you, you cite, the kind of license that Congress could be granted by a you know, ruling saying their actions were okay here, um, seems like potentially quite problematic and sort of anti American, um, what in your mind sort of explains the equanimity of the court? Do you think they're just sort of viewing the case that's in front of it? And perhaps if that more egregious or blatant situation does come up down the road, then they can, can deal with it? Could that be part of the reason? I think that's possible. I think also, you know, you, although the court is divided in some ways um, on, um, you know, the Constitution, I think in some other ways there is relative conformity uh, among the members of the court about uh, kind of how the Constitution is interpreted, particularly from a textualist standpoint. Um, that is, if the text affords Congress this this power, it's going to be interpreted without, you know, too much limitation. Uh, and that wasn't always the case. The, Consti- the, the court at, at various points of time has had um, justices who are much more focused on the structural uh, kind of workings of the, the Constitution and the courts. Uh, in the early days of the Republic, it was, the court was very much focused on the practical um, uh, aspects of kind of how um, um, you know the Constitution would function, judicial review. How's that going to work? Um, so, um, um, you know, so I think in part you have an approach to interpretation of the Constitution that, on questions like this, um, is is somewhat deferential to Congress's authority. Um, the court 
the Supreme Court these days is broadly deferential, first of all, to, to Congress's authority in, in many ways. Um, but I think that, um, you know, where there's a textual kind of uh, a power given to the given to Congress, this court is one that that um, is going to uh, is going to focus on that or at least see more validity to that than um, kind of structural concerns down the road. Um, the court's essentially going to say, well, okay, but, you know, may- maybe there are these concerns, but that's for kind of co- Congress and, and the people I- who vote for Congress to-, to figure out. And if you don't like that Congress has removed all sexual harassment lawsuits from the federal courts or something along those lines without modifying the substantive law, um, just taking those cases away, then, you know, vote for somebody else for Congress and they'll put it back. Uh, that's not always been what the, the the way the court has kind of approached questions like this, um, but I think that that is a view that is kind of relatively dominant on the Supreme Court today. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, it certainly sounded like there was some unanimity at oral argument, so we'll find out soon enough if that uh, that persists to the issuance of the opinion. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, thanks very much for uh, being on the podcast to chat about the case. I appreciate it. Anytime, Brian. And with that, our show for November 17th, 2017 is complete. Thanks for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.